Thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. We'll get started in just a moment. If this is your first time here, please consider subscribing so that you may stay up to date with the latest podcast. And if our podcast brings value to your life, please consider sharing it with family and friends. Thanks for listening. And now here's today's podcast. Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church, located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. So um, today is uh, a special day. This is uh, a continuing series that we call um, the Taboo Series. Uh, unfortunately, now listen, I'm a church boy. I, I was, uh, I've been in church since nine months before I was born. Right? This is all I know. And I know that, that uh, churches have a tendency to avoid things that make people uncomfortable, avoid things that might be uh, controversial. Um, but I'm just telling you, y'all, I'm too old for that mess anymore. Um, there's, some real, there's some real life stuff that affect people that we need to talk about because the Word of God addresses it and gives us strength and wisdom and guidance as we go through it. So uh, today we're going to talk about mental health. I don't know. I, I don't know that I've ever been in a church service where we actually talked about mental health, and I hate that. This is my 31st year of ministry. This is my 10th year of pastoring this church, and um, I'm sorry we waited so long, but I think God's timing is perfect, and he knows what he's doing. So that's why, uh, that's why I said that this, the subject matter today is going to be um, mature. And I want you to, I just wanted you to be uh, aware of it and make sure that you're ready for that, okay? So um, let's pray and we're going to dive in. Father, just uh, bless this time that we have together today. I pray that you would bring freedom and healing and insight and wisdom and understanding. Lord, do all the things that need to be done. You're God, we're not. You led us to this moment. So, Lord, we're going to be obedient and, um, and empty ourselves today of what you've placed in our hearts, and I pray and, and believe that you're going to do what only you can do. And we give you glory and praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today is more testimony than sermon, okay? Um, and it's been a long time in the making. So you remember a few months ago, um, I came to the pulpit and told you that I had a perfectly good message that I was planning to preach and that God said, set that thing aside. And I told you what he told me he said, will you trust me with the messy stuff? Will you trust me with the messy stuff? Because I had a concept, I had an idea. It wasn't really developed, and I don't like sharing things that I haven't been able to spend time developing. But the Lord said, no, that's what I want. That's what's here for this moment. Will you trust me? Will you set aside what you think is the good one and trust me with the messy stuff? And so today is the messy stuff. And we knew, I think I looked at Valerie when I said that from the pulpit, and she looked at me, and I knew, we both knew what we were going to have to do. So um, we have a messy story to tell you. Um, it's a testimony that's real and raw and unrefined. Um, we've been led to believe that uh, we should only share testimonies of perfection and completion, right? We've got to wait till everything, it's a happily ever after. Um, this, this ain't that. This one's still in progress, okay? So um, we've been waiting on a testimony of healing, but today is a testimony of grace, okay? Because the same God who heals and restores and saves also helps you on the journey along the way. 
And he gives you the grace moment by moment to get you wherever it is that he's taking you. Okay, And so this is a time where we're just going we, we've had to t- sort of take ourselves off the throne and just let God be God and just let him just trust him in the moments. Okay, So here's how I want to do this. I, I'm going to sort of set up this discussion of mental health by defining it and showing you why we need to talk about it in the church. And we're going to take just a minute to do that. And then Valerie and I are going to share a couple of different things with you. And then finally, I want to take, talk about some takeaways. Um, and the vision that I believe God has given me for this church that was sort of rooted in this message today. So let's talk about mental health. It's been a subject that's been too taboo in, in the churches for far too long. And the more I've studied the issue for this message, the more frustrated I've become with myself and with uh, the church, the capital C church, uh, that we haven't been, not only that we haven't talked about it, but we, we haven't been out front leading the charge um, th- this is not going to be everything there is to say about mental health because that's just not possible in our allotted time. Um, what I hope this does is start a conversation in your home uh, and maybe in our church and in the greater community, an open and honest conversation that will bring help and healing to people uh, for generations to come. I really believe that what we're doing today is going to affect generations um, to come. So it's that important. So right off the bat, let's talk about what mental health is. Define it. Um, Mentalhealth.gov has a great definition, and I want to read this to you, and they're going to kind of hit the highlights on the screens for you as we go. Mental health includes our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. Our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. It affects how we think, how we feel, and how we act. It also helps determine how we handle stress, Y'all know anybody, do you know anybody that has stress in their lives? How we handle stress, how we relate to others, and how we make choices. Mental health is important at every stage of life, from childhood through, uh, and adolescence through adulthood. And over the course of time, if you experience mental health problems, uh, your thinking, your mood, and your behavior could be affected. Now, let's just stop right there, because this is what really irritated me about the silence of the church about mental health. It affects, let me say it again, it affects how you think, how you feel, and how you act. Does that sound familiar? Uh, Just last week, we talked about it, didn't we? You think with your mind, you feel with your emotions, you act from your will. Well, what do we know that's made up of your mind, your will, and your emotions? Your soul. Your soul. The church should have been ringing this bell decades ago because there's no way to separate mental health from spiritual health. Mental health affects your soul. Okay? If you are not mentally healthy, you can't be spiritually healthy. I'm not saying you're in sin. I'm not saying you're a failure. I'm simply trying to get you to see that you can't keep trying to put mental health into a box and hide it away in the darkness as if it only affects that one area of your life and as if it doesn't affect anybody else but you. All the systems of our bodies are created by God to work together. They, they are, we are integrated beings. So if you crack open your, your skull and you see little boxes in there where you think you're keeping everything separate, you ain't seeing the real deal. That's just not how it works, okay? 
Now, this is the other reason why we have to talk about mental health. What, are, what did Jesus say were the top two commandments that we need to keep? Love God, love others as you love yourself. Nothing affects your perception of God, your perception of yourself, and your perception of other people than your mental health. That means your ability to serve God and be in right relationship with him and with other people is directly connected to your mental health. So I'm going to say it again. You can't be spiritually healthy and mentally unhealthy at the same time. Okay? Now, there, is it a sliding scale? Sure it is. It's not, a, it's not absolute. But I, I want you to see the importance of this issue. So I'm sorry it's, just, it's 2022 and we're just saying this. I can't do anything about the past, but I'm telling you now, mental health is a spiritual issue, and we will not be silent about it anymore, okay? Now, the brain is the most complex organ in your body. It is an organ. So it functions on a very specific combination of chemicals and enzymes and hormones and the right balance of water and oxygen. You get any of those things out of balance, and it can affect your life profoundly. Your brain houses your soul. I know we talk about soul issues and we sort of involuntarily grab our chest. That is not your soul. That's your heart. Your heart just pumps blood. Your soul is up here. And I know it would seem, it'd seem weird to say, I just, I just love you with all my soul. Um, <laughs> sounds weird. It looks weird. You ain't got to change that. I just want to make sure you know where it went. All right. If you try to find it, and it's not there. That, that's why mental health is so important. It's, it's your soul is there. Now, there's lots of causes for mental health, and we've got a ton of resources on that table in the lobby. And I want you to take some time. Don't just run for the Cracker Barrel. I'm telling, y'all gonna be late for Cracker Barrel. I'm just telling you. Um, take some time in the lobby and and take the resources that you need for yourself or your loved ones to make sure that that you are resourced to address whatever might be going on. We have, uh, we have Jamie Lewis here who's also going to be helping at the table. To, she is a, a certified, I don't know the official term, Jamie, so I'm sorry, but she is a practicing therapist and counselor, and she can give you, she's not going to do a session with you in the lobby, so y'all calm down. Um, but she can give you recommendations and encouragement and sort of point you in the right direction. Okay, so um, thank you for being here. Uh, here's some causes of mental health issues. Again, this is from the uh, mentalhealth.gov website. Lots of factors, but, but here's kind of the three biggies. Uh, genetic factors. So there, there's a very high percentage of people who struggle with mental illness for whom it is a genetic condition. It was inherited. Okay, so um, there's a genetic predisposition for mental health in a lot of people. The second thing is biological factors. So that might be blood chemistry. It might be hormones. It might even be a traumatic brain injury that causes your brain to act or react in certain ways. Okay, and then there's situational or experiential uh, causes such as trauma, grief, um, abuse, all of those things that happen to you that cause stress, that cause trauma, tragedies, trials in your life, if they persist for long enough or if they're serious enough, they can, they can, pain changes your brain, okay? So it chemically alters how your brain works 
when you're under enough stress and trauma for a long enough time. So it's important for you to recognize your brain might be perfectly healthy otherwise, but if you've been through enough stress and trauma in your life, it will affect how your brain processes things, okay? That's just, it's just a fact. Now, there's lots of causes. It's not just, sometimes it's not even just one cause. Sometimes it's some of all three or a couple of others put together. But it's not, mental illness, mental illness is not a one-size-fits-all thing. Okay? It's highly, highly individualized. So in some, when somebody says they have cancer, it could be a fairly simple skin cancer that can be removed quickly and easily. It also could be some devastating terminal form. So just because someone says they have a mental illness, it, you, you still don't know what they're struggling with. Okay, so don't don't uh, don't presuppose that you understand what they're saying just from that. Now, here here's the here's the personal side. So that's that's all the setup. Here's the personal side. Valerie and I were uh, have been foster parents, or we started fostering in 2016. Um, and so, mental health for us is a personal issue because we've had eight different foster kids in our homes. Um, you find out pretty quickly. I mean, I think you kind of have an idea of what you're getting into with foster care. You, you think you have an idea of what you're getting into with foster care. What you realize pretty quickly is that you have to get real uh, educated about mental health issues real quick because kids are removed from a home because they've been through trauma and abuse and neglect, and all of that affects how your brain works. And so all of the foster kids that we've had have dealt with some level and some aspect of mental health in their homes, and so uh, in our home, so we've had kids that had PTSD as a result of of the abuse that they've been through. Uh, pretty much all of them had anxiety, clinical levels of anxiety that they dealt with. Okay, uh, and some of that presents itself as ADHD, like their brain is so used to just having to be wide open all the time that they just can't slow it down just because a teacher starts teaching. Right, so it presents itself that way. We had a um, six-year-old that self-harmed, so he hit himself all the time. So if something didn't go his way, he didn't like dinner, he didn't like whatever. He's gonna—he punched himself in the face, he banged himself on the, his head on the wall, he banged his head on the floor uh, once. That didn't go well. Um, he hardwood hardwood, floor. hardwood floors, yeah. He reared back, and I couldn't stop him before he did it. He never did that again. It was amazing. Um, so. And I tell you what, watching a six-year-old punch himself in the face 200 times does something to your mental health. So um, we dealt with that. We, we dealt with eating disorders. We've dealt with a kid who heard the voice of his abuser in his head. Um, and we dealt with suicidal thoughts um, from, from these kids as well. So... Um, it, this issue is personal for us. A lot of the information, a lot of the, the things that we know, we've gained from experience and from the training that we had as, as, uh, as parents. Um, so when it's right in your own home, it gets real, real quick. Um, but this issue is actually even more personal than that for us. Um, in July of 2018, Valerie was diagnosed with bipolar disorder after um, a short stay in a psychiatric hospital in Atlanta. Uh, we are passionate, and we've never said that in public. We are uh, passionate about this issue because we're living with it every day. Okay? Um, obviously, there's a lot more to the story, and it started way before 2018. So uh, 
Valor, why don't you take us back to the beginning and just sort of let us know how did it how does it how did it start with you, and when did you sort of notice something was changing? For me, it goes all the way back to 1993 when Zach was born. So we joke and say You're it's welcome. all Zach's fault. <laughs> Here's to you, bud. Thanks, man. <laughs> No, Zach was very much wanted. Um, we actually, when we decided we wanted to have a baby, we, we held hands and we prayed together that God would, would bless us with a child, and, and he did. And um, in September of 1993, Zach was born, and we were absolutely elated. I mean, it was the best day of our lives to that point. Um, so after he was born... I began to notice that I just didn't feel the same. I was, I was joyful. I was excited. I, I would look at him. He was perfectly healthy. He was big. He was nine pounds and three ounces, 21 inches long. And, but I was so thankful and joyful that I had my son. And God had answered our prayers. And as we got home and things went along, I, I just didn't feel right. I was happy on the inside, but something just didn't feel right in, in my mind. And um, so when I went for my six-week checkup to the doctor, I told him, I said, I don't know what's going on. I'm happy. My baby's healthy. Um, you know, things are going great, but something is just not feeling right. And he told me, you know, he said, you, you've got some postpartum depression. It's very normal. He said, um, a lot of women experience it. And um, he said, let me, I'll get you some medication that will help. I said, okay. So I go home and I tell John that I have postpartum depression, which he probably had already figured out. <laughs> and so we get the medication filled, and I start taking this medication. Well, being the good little godly Christian that I was at that time, I felt so guilty for taking medication. I mean, to the point that every time I took the medication, I felt like I was not having faith in God. And so I took this medication for maybe two or three weeks, and I came off of it because of the guilt that I felt um, because we had always been taught, you know, mind-altering drugs are not good for Christians and these kind of things. And I felt so guilty about it um, that I, I came off the medication. And um, so obviously the, the uh, symptoms progressed, but I was too prideful and um, too religious to take medication for it. So we just kind of rocked on tried to, to live life. Um, four years later, Morgan was born. Yay. And Come on. I love you, Morgan. <laughs> but after she was born, the depression got worse. <laughs> um, <clears throat> again, it was that same feeling. I had a healthy baby. We had prayed for her. God had answered our prayers. Everything was going beautifully. But I just couldn't put my finger on it. Something was wrong. And at that point, I knew again that it was the postpartum depression. 
it's normal. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of women experience this. Um, because having a baby is very traumatic for the body um, and for your mind. And um, so it, it began to, to get worse. This time I did go to the doctor and told him how I was feeling and that things had gotten worse. He again said, you know, will you take the medicine this time that I, I, that I will prescribe you? So I did. I, I took the medicine this time, still felt guilty about it, but I knew things were getting worse and I had to do something. So I stayed on the medicine this time and it did help. It kind of helped to level out the, the highs and the lows. Um, because I had gotten to the point to where I really couldn't function in life. I would get up, do what I needed to do to get my kids ready for school, get myself to work. I would come home and I would go back to bed. I, John used to call it my cave. My bed was my safe place. I could, I could go in there and cover up and not have to worry about anything. And it was my safe place. I wanted to be in my bed. And um, I began to realize then that, you know, I definitely needed help. That's when I went to the doctor. Um, after that, for a little while, things were better. And then I got to where I started having um, anxiety and um, panic attacks. And did not know what in the world was going on. If you've never experienced that, there's no way to really explain it. Um, but two particular times that I had a really bad anxiety attack, um, one of them, we had been invited to a cookout with a family here in the church. And I'd had a rough day. I knew I wasn't feeling good, but I thought, I need to go. It's going to do me good to get out. You know, sometimes you'd have to just make yourself get up and go. And this was a church event, and we were not, um, John was not lead pastor at that time, but I still felt like, you know, we're church leadership. I need to be there. And so I got ready, and the whole time I was just like, God, please help me. Please help me. I was just feeling this anxiousness inside of me, and... um but I was trying to push through. We literally got ready to leave and walked out to get into the car, and I just stopped, and I made eye contact with John, and I stopped, and I said, I can't do it. I, I can't. I can't go, and I turned around, and I just rushed back into the house, and John came in, and he said, don't worry about it. You, I'll go on, and um, you stay here and just try to relax and rest. It literally was a, um, uh, I was frozen. I literally tried to get to the car to go, and I couldn't. She got to the threshold of the garage to get in the car. I was already in the car waiting on her, and it was like there was an invisible wall uh, in the door frame. And she got there, and she literally could not take the next step to get into the car. And so when I saw her, and I saw the panic in her eyes. Um, I knew that this was, this was different. This wasn't just an introvert not wanting to go to a social gathering, that there was something, something else was going on. So she, she did, wasn't able to make it that night. So he went on to the cookout, and I went back inside, and I took my clothes off, and I put on my PJs, and I went to my cave. 
I laid down in the bed, and I think I stayed there the whole rest of the night. Didn't get up till the next morning. The second time that I had a major um, anxiety or panic attack was right here on this platform. Um, John was was music pastor at the time, and I sang on the praise team. And there was everything was fine that morning. I'd gotten ready, come to church, everything was fine. And we were standing up here singing, and in the middle of the worship set, I started panicking. I started feeling like I couldn't breathe, and I was just kind of shaking all over. And I I told, I, I was praying, I was singing, but I was praying, God, please help me to get off this platform. Help me to make it through this set so that I can get off this platform. I've got to get down from here. And I felt my heart just racing so fast, and I was standing right there, and I think we had like two songs left in the set, and I don't know how in the world I sung the words to those songs, because my mind was just, get off of this stage, you've got to get off this stage, so with God's help, I made it through that worship set, and at that time, you could, there was a door right here, you could just exit the stage through this door, and I put my microphone down, and I hightailed it, to the back. I, I couldn't get down those steps fast enough. And John was down there in the back room and he said, are you okay? And I said, no, I've got to go home. I've got to get out of here. I've got to go home. And I said, I can't breathe. I was shaking all over. I literally in the car driving home, I started like I kicked my shoes off. I had to get my clothes off. I, I didn't strip in the car completely, but I I, anything that I could, I kicked my shoes off, and I, I, um, I even kind of lifted up my shirt. I was just, I turned the air on high all the way, and I was like, what in the world is wrong with me? I got home and took off everything, and I was like, okay, and I turned the ceiling fan on in the bedroom, and I just tried to take some deep breaths, and I went to my cave. I got in the bed. I pulled up the covers. And I took some deep breaths, and I went to sleep. And John came home from church, of course, checked on me, and I said, I don't know. I've never experienced it that bad. It was worse than the the cookout anxiety attack. I said, I don't know, and it just hit me out of nowhere. I don't know what happened. I I I don't understand it, but I had to get home. I couldn't get home quick enough to get into the bed. Um. So I knew then that things were were getting worse, and I was still taking my um, antidepressant at that time, and it was helping, but it didn't help with everything. Um, not too long after that, I started having what is clinically called manic episodes. Um, I would get super um, hyper-focused on things. Now, I don't want y'all to think I was a Tasmanian devil. There are extremes to bipolar disorder. There is a spectrum. I never was to the top end of that spectrum, but I did have manic episodes. um, And still do from time to time, but nothing like they used to be. Um, I would get hyper-focused on things to the point that I would spend hours and hours and hours. It might be something on the Internet um, that I was researching or like when Morgan and Tyler were getting married. I don't know how many countless, countless, countless hours 
that I spent and I couldn't stop. I would, I would spend hours looking at, at things, posts and things about weddings and different decorations and different things to do and songs and all the stuff that you normally, I mean, you normally do those kinds of things for a wedding. It is, you know, you think about it a lot and you have a lot of planning to do. But mine went to an unhealthy extreme to the point that I couldn't sleep at night. Um, I would wake up in the middle of the night and I'd grab my phone and I'd start looking at Pinterest again. You know, what can we do to make this wedding um, special for them? And as it turns out, we ended up going to a venue that they took care of everything. And we hired a florist that took care of decorating everything. I didn't have to do squat. I wasted so much time so much time, but I couldn't stop it. It went to an unhealthy extreme. Um, John used to say, you're down the rabbit hole again. You know, you're down the rabbit hole, and he'd try to pull me back out of it. I couldn't stop. Um, it may have been sometimes it, now this was sometimes a good thing, but it was cleaning. Um, all of a sudden, I would come out of my cave, and everything in the house got on my nerves. Clutter was on my nerves. These kids are not picking up their stuff, you know. And it would just drive me crazy. So we'd start cleaning. And I would clean, and I would clean, and I would clean. And John would be like, don't you need to slow down? No, I'm good. That's what the manic episode does. Like I said, all of this is not bad until it goes to that unhealthy extreme to where I could not stop it. Um, one day, Anthony, he's back there in the sound booth. Our son, Anthony keeps a terrible room, does not keep his room clean. And one day he was at school and I said, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to clean up his room. So I did. I pulled everything out of his drawers. I organized it because we fold his clothes and then he's responsible for putting them up. So he just takes the stack and just shoves it into one drawer, whatever he can get in that drawer. And I thought, by golly, he is not going to do that anymore. So Anthony comes home from school. I have all of his drawers organized, but I got out our label maker, and I labeled his drawers. (laughs) Underwear, socks, short sleeve shirts, long sleeve shirts. So he walks in his room and is like, what in the world is she doing but I couldn't stop. It was like I had to just keep going. So, and those labels are still on his drawers to these day, this day. Does he follow them? No, still doesn't. And I will tell him sometimes, Anthony, I have the drawer marked T-shirts. Put the T-shirts in the T-shirts. But he still wants to shove everything in one drawer. Teenagers. Um, so anyway, though, those were my type of manic episodes. And then I would have those episodes, and then I would crash after that. My brain would just go and go and go and go and go, and I'd not be able to stop. But then usually like the next day, I was just done. I couldn't do anything. I, was, I had crashed. So I went from this down to this now, the extreme low. And so what did I do? I went back to my cave. And, and, and John recognized these patterns, and he would tell me, you know, you're going to have to slow down, but I couldn't. 
But he knew the crash was coming, and he had prepared for it. And he would tell me, you just need to rest today. He, he understood enough at that point to say, you, you just need to rest. Just stay in here and rest. And it literally wiped me out like I would sleep all day long. Um, I was just exhausted. Um, so we noticed, the, we didn't know at the time it was a manic episode. I remember thinking, I'm just, I'm crazy. I am crazy. I don't know what's wrong with me, um, but I'm, I'm crazy. And um, so then it got to the point um, to where every little thing set me off. I had anger. Um, and I, I couldn't understand why when I had these anger why it set me off like that? Why did what he said make me so mad? Why did um, what that person did set me off so bad? Again, this was to an un- unhealthy extreme um, of anger, and I would get so upset to the to the point of rage. Yeah. You know, there's there there are scales. And I, I got to where I called it rage. It was never violent. I never thought she was going to beat me up or anything. But um, it, was, it was hard to watch and hard to listen to. Um, what, I, what I've come to understand now is because of the way her brain was processing what was going on around us, what might be disappointing for you was devastating for her. Um, what might be irritating for you was infuriating for her. And so I couldn't understand how it was working in her brain um, at the time. And so all I knew was it, this seemed like a, a severe overreaction. Like, why in the world are you that fired up about something that's really not that big of a deal? But so I think a lot of people with, with bipolar disorder, a lot of people see the overreaction and they think that the, the problem is the overreaction. I think what they miss is how profound and how powerful the thoughts and the emotions are for them in that moment. That whatever set them off, they're feeling it with every fiber of their being. And what I've come to realize, now it doesn't necessarily make it easier, but what I've come to realize is that she's not doing this on purpose, that this is how it's working in her brain. And so I've come to understand that she really does feel like something is, uh, is impossibly infuriating in that moment or, or devastating in that moment, and, and how she's perceiving it is what is different. So... Um, it's it's been a lot of uh, it's it's been a lot of, of learning over the years. Her rage eventually, almost always, was focused on me. It would get it would get focused on me because she perceived the situation differently than me. And when I didn't react in the way that she thought would be appropriate for the for what she was feeling, then all of the aggression and and uh, everything got focused on me. And so. Um, she felt betrayed by me because I wasn't doing what she thought I should do in that moment. Um, so it was, uh, it was hard. It was hard to live through. We have since learned from, from then that um, 
we do take out our anger and aggression on the ones that we love the most. And we do that because we feel the most comfortable with them. Um, having gone through this process and learned what we've learned, it is, it is extremely difficult to, to be the one with this diagnosis, but it is equally as difficult, if not sometimes more so, for the spouse or the family member that's having to um, deal with these issues and not really understand why and not, understand, not know what to do about it. Um, so we tend to, to vent or to lash out at the ones that we love the most. And for me, that was, that was John. Um, so after the anger and I would, I would, I can remember just laying there and thinking, why does nobody understand me? Why am I the one that's always wrong? Why am I, I'm the one that's always being told to calm down these are legitimate situations. What, what's going on? And I, I can remember so many times thinking, I'm not crazy. I, I'm not crazy. And, but I felt so um, crazy. Yeah, I felt crazy. Thank you. Um, but it was so frustrating to me that nobody understood. Um, so that kind of turned into... Suicidal thoughts. This happened more than once. Um, when I would feel misunderstood, feel like I was crazy. I'm supposed to be this good girl, this, this Christian girl that was raised in the church. We were pastoral leadership by this time. Um... You were senior pastor. You became senior pastor kind of in the middle of some of it. The first time he was still just church leadership. Um, The feelings of being so low and so depressed and so misunderstood and so crazy. There were two or three times that I thought, what's the point of being here? You know, I'm putting on a mask when I go to church and I smile and act like everything's okay when I really just want to not be here. And one time I just left the house. I couldn't take it anymore. I left on foot. We lived in a neighborhood at the time. I walked around to the back of the neighborhood where there were some houses that had not been sold yet. They were uh, empty. And I just sat down on the back porch of one of those houses And I just cried. And I said, God, I don't know what else to do. Nobody understands me. I'm always wrong. What would the people at the church think of me? If they knew, what would my family think of me? If they knew. I just don't even want to be here anymore. And I sat there for... Probably a couple of hours. John knew that I had left the house. He had no idea where I went. And he called a couple of friends from here at the church. And he said, Valerie's gone. I don't know where she's at. I don't know what state of mind she's really in. So they started trying to find me. 
So there are, you're torn because you need help. I need, I'm talking about me, the, uh, the, the family member. We needed help. I needed help. But you also don't know who you can trust. And so I'm working at a church trying to figure out who I can trust. <laughs> How's that? And so we had a staff member, Ingrid, um, and I knew I could trust Ingrid. So I said, hey, Valerie's gone. She's suicidal. I don't know where she is. we got to find her. So she jumped in the car behind me, and, and we start towards the neighborhood. And we're looking. I don't know what Ingrid's doing, but I'm looking in every ditch, you know, looking down every embankment. He knew I was on foot. The car was still at the house. I knew once I got there, but I didn't know between the church and the house where she was. I didn't know. I didn't know. So uh, we just split up, and we started finding her and, and um, eventually did find her and and uh, was able to bring her back to the house and and she settled down but I'm, I mean I'm sure you went to sleep Ingrid actually was coming around the corner as I was walking out from behind the house where I had been hiding so as I was walking around the house she comes walking down the street this way and we met she just threw her arms around me and just hugged me she said, it's going to be okay. She just hugged me and told me it was going to be okay. She contacted John and told him that she'd found me and that I was okay. And I went back to the house. And then all the guilt sets back in. What are you doing? And the shame. You know, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing this? You're so crazy again. You're crazy and um, then there was a, um, I guess, what I call the shock and awe. How many of you know when you get too prideful and stubborn, God has a way of breaking your pride? Pride goeth before the fall is what the word says. So now we're to July the 3rd and 4th. And 5th of 2018. John is the lead pastor at this time. And I've still had this struggle going on. We had a particular incident uh, involving family that I got really upset about. And it turned into that rage again. The whole thing about John wasn't responding like I was And why was he not responding that way? Why are you not taking care of this, you know? And I was so worked up and so livid about it, and I couldn't understand why he wasn't. I knew I was spiraling, but I couldn't do anything about it. I was so mad and so angry, so I went to my cave Closed the bedroom door. I was in my cave. You locked it that night. Yeah. I closed it and locked it. I didn't want him coming in. I was too mad at him. I slammed the door and I locked it. But we have the little locks that has the little slit in it. And all you got to do is use your fingernail to open it up, you know. So he I came, got my pillow, 
I'm going to sleep on the couch. I'm sleeping with my pillow. Which I had thrown in the floor, by the way. <laughs> if you need to know if you're welcome in the bed, if your pillow's on the floor, you are not. <laughs> so he picked up his pillow and grabbed a blanket, and he went into the other room. So I slept all night long, off and on. The next day, I've, a lot of times when I would have those um, episodes, it would last for a little while. And usually by the next day, I was okay. Well, this time it, I wasn't. The next morning, I was just as mad. I felt just as guilty. I felt just as um, crazy. I felt um, there was no way out. Um, I just wanted to go to sleep, and I wanted the pain to go away. So the thoughts of suicide came back. And she told me that in that moment, told me not only that she was just done and she just wanted it to be over, but she told me what she was planning to do. So that escalated it to a level that obviously you have to do something. So I spent uh, the night. I did not go to the couch immediately. I went outside. I walked my driveway. We have a long driveway, a long driveway. if you're wondering. He's not just circling <laughs> one little small It's not driveway. a subdivision driveway. So um, I walked the driveway at midnight and 1 o'clock, and I don't know, probably a couple of hours until I just couldn't go anymore. Begging God to do something. Because I didn't know what to do. <clears throat> Trying to figure out how to stop the pain that I was in. And to hear the things that, that she would say in these moments um, was hard to hear. I'm a words of affirmation guy. You're a five love languages deal. Which which means you respond really well to to encouraging and loving words it also means you're really sensitive to words that are not <clears throat> and so I'm trying to figure out what do I do and at this point it's been 25 years and I'm tired and I'm tired of it and uh, so I'm trying to figure out what I do so I thought about just walking and just not stopping Walking down Jacksonville Road, eventually you wind up in Alabama. Go somewhere that nobody knows me and start over. Y'all, I'm st I was your pastor at this time. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to go back to the grocery business? You know, I sure can't pastor a church. Hey, I left my wife, my four foster kids in Buckhead, and I'm here to pre preach. Um, so... I just, I knew I couldn't do that to her. I couldn't do that to the kids. I couldn't do that to you. Didn't want to. I just needed something to change. I wouldn't say that I was suicidal, but I could see it from where I was. I could understand how somebody could get there because it's not just the pain, it's the hopelessness. Like you can endure the pain for a minute, but um, when you don't think it's going to end you start considering things that you never would have considered. So we talked. 
God did not show up in bodily form. He did not go fix my wife. When I, I did finally collapse on the couch for a few hours, I got up early so that I could get all that mess cleaned up and I wouldn't set her off again. We had just gotten four foster kids uh, three weeks before. So there was stuff to do and take care of the house. And, uh, you know, I checked in during that day on July 4th and she was still <laughs> not happy to see me. Um, that's when she started telling me about what she wanted to do. We um, had the kids signed up for a camp. So the three oldest I took to camp, we took, I called our older kid, Zach Morgan, and I said, I don't, I don't know what's fixing to happen, but uh, y'all got to come get Haley. So they came and got Haley. I took the older kids to camp, and I'm filling out paperwork, wondering if when I get home, I'm going to find my wife. So I get them signed up, and I go home, and I walk in, and she's still in the bed. I think she got up to go to the bathroom. Man, she was angry about going to the bathroom. And um, I had to come out of my cage. She had to get up out of the bed. And I just said, so where you at? And she told me where she was at and uh, where I was, too. And, um, and I said, all right, so uh, this is how this is going to go. You're going to get your butt up by that bed. You're going to get in the car, and we're going to the hospital. Or you're going to lay in the bed. I'm going to call 911, and they're going to come drag you to the hospital. But something's changing today. And, and to my amazement, she said, well, let me get ready. <laughs> I was like, which only consisted of putting on clothes. No yeah. makeup. My hair was greasy because I had not washed it in a couple of days. Uh, but that's the state that I was in. Yeah. And I didn't want the police coming into my house and dragging me to the hospital. So to shut him up, because <laughs> he was very adamant, you're either going with me or I'm calling the police. There was, this was an ultimatum. So I said, okay, fine. It was so much fun on the way to the hospital. It was such a great ride. We enjoyed it so much. We got to the end of our road, and I turned my blinker on to come to Higgins or Carrollton or whatever, just come to what I know. And she said, where are you going? And I said, the hospital? And she said, I'm not going to Bremen because everybody knows us. And I said, Okay, so I turned my left turn signal on, and we went north. And I, she said, where are you taking me? I said, I don't know. You won't let me take you where I know. So I'm going north till I see a hospital sign. I didn't know if they had, I honestly didn't know if they had a hospital in Cedartown or not. Turns out they do. That's where we went. And so we went to the hospital in Cedartown, and we walked in the door. And I said, my wife needs help. She needs, she, I think she needs to be 1013 and that's an involuntary psych hold, if you don't know what that means. We did not have insurance, medical insurance. So um, I was just at the mercy of the person behind the desk. I just said, you just tell me what to do, but we got to have some help right now. And so they, they took her in, and um, we saw the doctor, and they started doing the assessment. Um, I didn't want to go to Bremen or Carrollton because... We've, we've grown up here. I grew up in Carrollton, 
we were church leadership. He was the pastor here in Bremen. I had previously worked for eight years at the Bremen Middle School. We can't go anywhere without knowing somebody. And I thought, nobody is going to see me in this shape. I was too prideful. I was too prideful to admit that I, I, I was crazy. Um, so he takes me to, um, Cedartown to, was it Floyd Medical Center? Every time we pass that hospital now, my heart pounds. Um, the doctor came in, they put me in a room. The doctor came in and started doing an assessment, asking me all kinds of questions. And I don't remember all the questions, but I remember looking at him And just, I looked, he was standing right here beside me, and I looked him in the eyes and said, I'm done. And at that point, he nodded his head. He said, okay. And he walked out of the room. He eventually told John that they were going to indeed 1013 me, which means um, psych hold, and that you're going to a mental hospital. Um. So he was telling John that. They ended up bringing a um, security guard to sit right outside my door uh, while they tried to find me a bed in a, in a hospital, a mental hospital. Um, I ended up staying. This is all on July 4th. While the family's all gone out to picnic and watch fireworks, it was the worst day of our lives. Um, Once I realized that they were sending me to a mental hospital, the fear set in, and I'm like, please don't send me. Please, please don't send me. Well, once they make the decision and the doctor says you're going, there is nothing you can do to stop it. John tried. He he, he tried to intervene and say, look, let me just take her home. No. I mean, you have no say-so at that point. So I ended up staying the night. And all night long, I, I remember just, just crying and being so afraid. Where are they sending me? What's going to happen to me? I begged John. He did, they did let him stay with me that night in the, in the room. And I would beg him, please don't make me go. Please. Please don't make me go. I'm so scared. What are they going to do? Um, so we stayed that night. And apparently they worked all night trying to find me a bed. And... Um, so the next morning, July 5th, they came in and told us that they had found a bed um, at a hospital in Atlanta, Peachford Behavioral Health Treatment Center in Atlanta. So I was relieved that it wasn't Willowbrook because I would probably know somebody there. So they said, we'll, we'll take care of all the arrangements of getting you transported. It'll probably be around lunchtime, and they'll come and they'll transport you to the hospital. Um, what I didn't know, and John didn't know either, when you don't have insurance, you don't get the luxury of going in an ambulance to the hospital. They sent a female police officer with the police car to pick me up. She walked in the room. She said, I'm sorry, but I've got to pat you down. 
And she made me put my hands on the wall, spread my legs, and I was patted down. She said, I'm going to have to handcuff you. John's standing there watching all this happen. I remember looking at him saying, really? I've never even stolen a piece of bubble gum. And now I'm being treated like a criminal? I, I was so mad. She patted me down. She put me in handcuffs. And she said, I will, I will cuff you in the front so, rather than the back. It's more comfortable that way. I'm like, gee, thanks. And she escorted me out. And I asked her, I said, can we just walk out to the back door and then put the handcuffs on me? Again, I, 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 didn't, I wasn't a criminal. She put me in the handcuffs. She said, no, I'm sorry. You've got to, before we leave this room, you've got to be in handcuffs. And you've got to, you know, I, we will go out the back door. So she kind of took me out the back way. And I remember walking through the hallways and seeing people look at me. And I said, they think I'm crazy. They think I'm a criminal. I've done something bad. I'm walking in handcuffs to a police car. She puts me in the back of the car. And there's no room in the back of a police car. I don't know if y'all know that. <laughs> Some of you probably do know that. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not a small person. And I like to stretch out. And here I am in handcuffs. My knees are touching the back of the seat. And I'm one of those that gets car sick if I can't see the road. Well, she put me on the, the opposite side of the driver's side. Well, they've got their whole little desk set up in there with their laptop. So I can't see the road. And I thought, oh, God, I'm going to throw up all in this car. And so I, the only words I spoke to her the entire time, I said, can I please get some air? Because I get car sick. And she said, I'll crack the window for you. So she cracked my window about that much. And I know that nothing against the police, y'all. My son is a police officer or sheriff's deputy. This is their routine. This is their protocol. She was very friendly to me. And they do it for their safety because they do deal with people who are crazy and violent. She didn't know me. And this is just their routine. Zach's had to do the same thing on his job to other people. So my knees are hitting the back of that seat. I'm handcuffed and I can't move. And we were going to Atlanta. So it was a little over an hour drive, I guess. It felt like an eternity. And I remember riding down the road... And I was just looking out the road, and I remember tears just streaming down my face. And I thought, I was sitting there thinking, you're a pastor's wife. Your son is in law enforcement. 
what does this lady think of you? What, what, is, what is she thinking? What would she think if I told her I'm a pastor's wife? And all this was going through my mind. And I was just crying. I didn't say a word the whole trip there. She asked me if I wanted to listen to a certain station on the radio. And I said, no, I don't don't care. But I just remember thinking, what have you done? Where are you at? This was absolutely rock bottom. My pride was completely shattered. I had always been the good girl. I never got in trouble. I was always the good one. I was the teacher's pet. I was the one that, the, that if the teacher was going to be out, she left my name for the substitute. If you have any questions or any problems, just talk to Valerie and she'll know what to do. That's the kind of person I was. I never got in trouble for drinking, dry, drinking, partying, any of that kind of thing. I went to a spend-the-night party one time. This was the worst thing I ever did. I went to a spend-the-night party one time, and the girls were talking about going down the road to one of the upperclassmen that was in school with us and rolling her yard, toilet paper, rolling her yard. And, y'all, I thought, I cannot do that. I'm too good of a girl for that. I cannot. How many of y'all have rolled yards before? (laughs) No. Um, But I I just thought, what am I going to do? I cannot roll this yard. So as we're walking down the street in the middle of the night to go to this lady, to this girl's house and roll the yard, I thought, I know. I'm not going to, I'm not going to roll the yard. And I told him, I said, okay, y'all, while y'all are rolling the yard, I'm going to hide in the ditch over here and I'll let you know if any of the cars are coming. (laughs) That was the worst thing. I was the lookout. That's the worst thing I've ever done, y'all. And the whole time I was scared to death. But that just shows you. I I had just never gotten in trouble. I was always the good one. I have two younger brothers that got in all kinds of trouble, but that's neither here nor there. So for me to be sitting in the back of a police car, having been patted down in handcuffs in this car, going to a mental hospital, it was the lowest of the lows for me. I ended up staying in the hospital for four days, for 1013, it's an automatic three days. But my three days fell on a um, weekend. Well, the doctors aren't there to release you on a weekend. So I had to stay an extra night and come home on Monday. Um, that was the beginning of my healing. God had to get me broken, pride broken but also broken mentally to the point that I could say, I I need help. I need some help. Um, Once I was discharged from the hospital, um, they, before they can release you, they have to go ahead and set up an appointment for you to see a psychiatrist and to have counseling. So they set all that up for me before we left, and they, um, they set me up to go to the Harrelson Behavioral Health um, facility that's here in Bremen, and they were wonderful to me. Um, they, did not real, they did not tell me in the hospital any kind of diagnosis. They didn't tell me anything. They would just talk to me, ask me why I was there, 
and, you know, they're typing on their computers. So when we get home, John was looking at all the discharge papers. Yeah, I looked to see. I said, so what do they tell you? Nothing. I said, you, just, you spent four days in the hospital and they didn't tell you nothing? No. So I got the papers. I was like, they got to have something on here somewhere. So they, I saw that it said MD, MDD. And I sort of course, what do you do? You get, get the phone out, you start searching. I, I found out what I thought it might meant. I, I called the doctor's office the next day, finally got to speak to somebody. And they told me that it was, they, it was manic depressive disorder. It's the old terminology for bipolar. And so we, we had the diagnosis. And I remember us standing in the kitchen. And she sort of fell in my arms when she heard those words and got that diagnosis. But we looked it up immediately, and we saw all these symptoms, and we, could, we, we said, good Lord, that, that's, that's accurate, that's right. We went to, she went to behavioral health and got it confirmed. It, it was, it was a, the worst thing and the best thing that ever happened to us. And it was the best thing in the sense that now we knew what was going on. We had a name for it. And it was, it was hope for me because I knew now we had a common enemy. I knew that we could fight this thing together, that there's a name for it, that when, she is, um, when she's in one of those rages and when she's saying such hurtful things, that it's not her. She's not mad at me. She, it's not her saying these things to and about me. This is something else, and that we can fight this thing together. And so that's, that's what we did, and we had to learn to trust each other and uh, she had to learn to listen to me when I would try to help her see what's going on and perceive things a little different. She got much more self-aware. She can catch it when she's, when she's getting irritated more than she probably should, when she's feeling depressed more than she should, when she's getting anxious. And we're learning to put some things in place now to get her uh, to a better place. And so you want to kind of wrap up this section? I know we've taken yeah. a long time. Um, so you may think, where, well, where are you today? First of all, I'm not crazy. <laughs> Amen. And if you're experiencing any things, any of these things, you're not crazy either. That's a lie from the enemy. But I know now I'm not crazy. Um, I'm doing better now than I've ever been. Um, I'm still taking medication, which is helping I don't have near the episodes that I used to. And I think it's mainly because we know now what that common enemy is, like he said. And John has been amazing. He can usually see it before I can. And so he's there to help me. And I've learned to trust him because I know now that I don't process things the right way. And so I have learned to trust him when he says, you know, I, calm down. It's, it's going to be okay. I see where this is headed. And before, that would just shoot me off like a rocket. But now I know he's got my best interest in mind, and he has a healthy brain. Yeah. <laughs> healthy adjacent. <laughs> healthy So anyway, through all of this, I am doing much better. Am I completely healed yet? No but I'm a work in progress. I have definitely seen healing. Um, it's just not complete yet. Um, I've been through inner healing and deliverance twice. 
Um, I've done research on anger and trying to trace that root. Um, There is nothing wrong with that. That is all wonderful, and it can definitely help, and it has helped me. I've seen tremendous results from that, but I'm not completely there yet. Um, So God's not done with me yet. So my relationship with God is better than it's ever been. Our marriage is stronger. Um, John has definitely stuck to his vows. Because there, I'm telling you, the way our lives were, there's a lot of people that would have walked out and said, I can't, I can't do this. But he held true to his vows, good times and the bad. And he loved me and supported me through all of it. And it's that trust that I have now the way he has covered and protected me, he is very protective of me. Um, those that are closest to us know that. Um, he literally would die for me. Um, and I'm so grateful that he didn't give up on me and that he's there every day for me to help me. Um, one last thing I wanted to say. Um, when I do begin to struggle now I, I we recognize it and i when i start feeling that anxiety my song now that i that i go to is the song that the worship team sings called i speak jesus and cuz sometimes I, I get worked up and i don't even i don't even know what to pray and i just start singing that song i speak jesus over depression over anxiety i speak the name of jesus over my family over my mind There's power in the name of Jesus, and all we have to do is speak his name. And so I've gotten to where, where before I would just go to my cave. Now, I still may go lay down because it's the only quiet place in our house, but it's not that deep cave anymore. I can just listen to that song or repeat that song in my mind because I'm speaking the name of Jesus, and that is spiritual warfare. Um, and now, every July 4th, since then, well, the first July 4th, well, I guess that would have been 2019, we got to go to the fireworks, and we were sitting there, the fireworks were just had just started, and John leaked, reached over and he grabbed my hand, and he just winked at me, and um, he said, you made it a year. We made it another year, because that would have been the end last year, the the 18th, could have been the end. So every year we go to the fireworks now, and he'll reach over and he just grabs my hand. So it's a celebration, yes, for our nation, but it's a celebration for me that I made it another year. Listen, you've been very patient. Um, it's hard to put sharing your, bearing your soul on a time clock. So thank you for being patient. Um, let me wrap this up this way. Corey, you can come on if you want to. Um, why have we waited four years to share? Because <laughs> um, it's terrifying. Uh, how about that? Um, Valor's fear in sharing in this is is the shame and the stigma that's in church uh, about mental illness. 
Um, it, it took her around a while to wrap her brain around it herself, much less to share it with somebody else. So we waited to get some perspective. But also, I mean, the, it, it's exposing yourself, and you don't want, she doesn't want to be perceived as broken or different or less than or, or all of those things. You know, so I, I know that, I know Christians, we like to pray for people, and we like to pray in gangs. Um, but, you know, sometimes when it's all... When it's all you can do, I was wondering if you'd get that eventually. Um, when it's all you can do to sort of drag yourself to church and just feel normal for a minute, um, the last thing you want to do is get dogpiled and like draw attention to yourself. And y'all know me, y'all, I mean, no disrespect by that at all. But we, and, and we have the best intercessors and prayer team and, and, and they do this already but as a church in the big C church we've got to we've got to learn how to pray for people and maintain the dignity of that person at the same time and I grew up in this era where you call people out and you announced all their crap to everybody and then you went and slapped them on the head I would appreciate it amen in there somewhere but Right? You, you just, there, man, there's just a better way. That's just not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. When you make a show out of people's pain, that kind of mess, somebody needs to be in the altar. It's not that person. It's, it's the person that's trying to make a circus act out of somebody's pain. So, we got to, sorry, I'm a little protective. She might have mentioned that. I mean, I'd be going like full Will Smith on folks. Y'all come up at, after her. I'm sorry. I just I've been waiting on that moment to say Will Smith. <laughs> Here's the vision I think the Lord gave me a few weeks ago. Is we knew we knew we had to share it. We knew this was kind of where we were going to land with it because of all the other stuff that was going on in the month of May. And I felt like the Lord said, "This church has got to be a sanctuary for all." And. And I don't mean sanctuary in the sense that it's some holy place that you go and worship God. I mean, certainly that, that's part of it. But sanctuary in the sense that this is supposed to be a safe place where hurting people and broken people and, and sinners and saints can come and they can find grace and they can find peace and they can find strength and support and love and not find judgment and condemnation not find this dismissive cliche coffee cup Christianity where you just tell people to cheer up and count their blessings where you just tell people you're too blessed to be stressed and all that kind of mess that doesn't do anything but make somebody feel even worse when you finally get the guts to say I'm having some problems and somebody has the audacity to say something that stupid we have got to wake up and act like we've got sense and act like good Christian people still struggle. Good Christian people do have mental health issues that they struggle through. They do love Jesus and they do need their meds and they do need a therapist and they do need to, to sing worship songs over themselves sometimes to calm themselves down. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but real life is hard. 
And the last thing we need is to be a place where people come and feel more shame and more condemnation and more regret. It's got to be a sanctuary. And it was one of those moments when he spoke to me. It was like the get out of the boat message in 2019 when I knew it was time to, to start the Jericho Project and to get in this fight against sex trafficking. When, I, when I, was, I was writing that message and I was talking about getting out of the boat and I burst into tears at my kitchen counter and I knew that the Lord was saying, hey boy, I'm talking to you. You're not preaching this to them. I'm preaching this to you. I, I burst into tears a few weeks ago when the Lord said, this has got to be a sanctuary for everybody. And it's, it's just the truth. So I'm going to say a couple things that's got to be said. You need to hear me say this. Not every mental illness is a demon. Do we believe in, in the demon act spiritual warfare? Of course, we, you can't read, you can't believe the Bible and not believe in spiritual warfare. But not every person who is sick with mental illness has a demon. He, he did cast out demons. He also healed diseases. It's not the same thing. Okay? So we got to quit being ignorant about stuff and quit painting with such a big brush on everything, okay? We, mental illness is not a sin. She is not a sinner because her brain doesn't process things the way other people's brains do. So we got to quit telling people with clinical levels of anxiety that they're sinning because they have fear and worry. That's not the same thing. I got a lot of things I need to say, but I ain't got time to say them. If, I'm going to say this. If you need therapy, go get some. There's not a thing in the world wrong with talking to somebody. I think back, and and, and I'm going to say this too, if you need meds, take them for as long as you need them. If it's situational, if your cause is situational, it might be that as you work through the pain and the trauma, then then you're able to come off those and and be healthy and normal for the rest of your life. Cool. That's awesome. Not everybody's going to get to do that. So, if somebody needs to take it for six months, awesome. If somebody needs to take it for the rest of their lives, awesome. Whatever it needs to get you in the headspace to be able to live healthy. What we've noticed is that the meds help to turn down the volume in her head. That everything screams when she's having one of these episodes. The meds help to turn down the volume and she can hear the, the, the still small voice of God speaking peace into her soul. And if that's what it takes, then, that's, then praise God for medicine that helps. Right? And so I, I just get help. Get help. If you're struggling today, get help. You, you are not hiding it as well as you think you are. You cannot put this in a box. It affects every aspect of your life and your family. Go get help, whatever it looks like. If you are contemplating suicide, get help today go to the er today if if it's if you want to come pray about it we'll absolutely pray about it but if you have a plan and you're thinking about it you need to go get help today the, uh, heather put the put the slide up that's the national suicide prevention hotline call it and they will help you find the help you need go get help from somebody somewhere so get the help you need if it's therapy if it's meds if it's whatever it is and pray 
It's not mutually exclusive. You can do both at the same time. Pray. Ask Jesus to help you, to heal you. Ask Him to give you the grace that you need right now in this moment. And so this morning, I went back to the driveway on purpose. And I said, thank you that we're still here. Thank you that she's still here. Thank you. Thank you that you've brought her to the point that she can she can stand on this platform and say what happened in our lives and she can try to use it to help somebody else. Because I'm telling y'all, I love y'all, but we don't owe you this. We do this because we love you. And we do this because I don't want you to spend 25 years suffering the way we did. We do this because I think of the pastors that, that I sat under who, who made a point of talking about the evils of mind-altering drugs at the very time when she was beginning to struggle. And I think if we could have had somebody who could have supported us and loved us and encouraged us, it could have saved us 25 years suffering. We don't want that to happen to anybody else. So find the help you need and pray because God still heals and He still loves and we're still looking for the root and we're still looking and if it's medical, that's fine and if it's spiritual, that's fine if it's trauma, that's fine but we're going to keep looking and we're going to keep letting God heal until He takes us home. And we want the same for you. So, listen, y'all stand because your your butt's asleep. And we're just going to, I have no idea what we're going to do. I do know this, Corey's going to sing, I Speak Jesus. We're probably going to cry a little more. And then we're going to go to Cracker Barrel. This altar is never open. It's never closed. So if you want to come, it's never It's never closed. Um, if you want to come and pray, come and pray. And don't think, well, they're going to think I'm crazy. Have we not passed that already, y'all? So, God, thank you is all I can say. And I thank you that you've ordered the steps of the right people to be in this room or to be watching or listening or whatever, whenever. We just know your timing is perfect and we're just asking that you would move in people's hearts, that you would bring them grace, that you bring them peace, that you'd bring them strength. That you'd order their steps to the point that they would get the help that they need to be healthy and strong and be in right relationship with you and intimate relationship with you and with their family and with themselves. That they can love you and they can love others and they can love themselves the way they need to. Lord, just do what only you can do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We pray that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. And give us a call at 770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747.
At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.